Large paintings were held aloft for the people to see. Lists and even maps of the territories that they had conquered were held up. And these lists included over 50 battles that they had fought, and they counted the people that they had killed in battle. They numbered over one million. Next came prisoners of war forced to march before the Roman crowds. These included people like Cleopatra's sister. They, of course, would be imprisoned or, like many, put to death after the procession. Next came his officers with the laurel wreaths wreaths around their heads, and then the dictator himself. He rode in a chariot pulled by three white stallions. He was dressed in a purple toga. He had a laurel wreath on his head. He held an eagle scepter in his right hand, and he had his face covered with a red, shiny makeup to represent the god Jupiter who had supposedly given him the power to conquer. Over him stood a slave holding a golden wreath and who was repeating to him over and over in his ear, Remember, you are only human. Less than 100 years later, a true king And someone far more powerful than any Caesar entered the city that was rightfully his. But this kingly procession, his kingly procession, was much different than Caesar's. We're considering a passage in Mark this morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, and we're looking at verses 1 through 11. And just a reminder to those of you who are maybe new to Bible reading, the chapters, which are the big numbers, and the verse markings, which are the little numbers, were not in the original texts, but they've simply been put there by the translators so that I can tell you where to go in your Bible and read. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Tell him, The Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. We'll consider two major points this morning from this passage, and it might be helpful for you if you write those down, and here they are. 
The first is that Jesus is the King of Kings. Jesus is the King of Kings. The second is a cross mentality versus a crowd mentality. A cross mentality versus a crowd mentality. Well, throughout the book of Mark, Jesus has been doing amazing miracle after amazing miracle, driving out the demonic powers that plagued the people of Israel. He's been teaching his disciples what it meant to be a part of and what it meant to lead in the coming kingdom of God. And he was confronting as well the hypocrisy and the hard hearts of the religious leaders that would come to him. Now he's finally arriving in Jerusalem after three years of crisscrossing the Israeli countryside and wilderness and villages and towns. Three times now, since Mark chapter 8, when they were far away from Jerusalem, Jesus has told his disciples in very clear language, we will go to Jerusalem where I will be rejected by the religious leaders, suffer humiliating torture, be killed, and then rise from the dead on the third day. Three times he told them this. But the disciples could not understand it. And now they're here, with Jerusalem almost in sight. And it's here that Jesus plans and participates in a grand entry that was the clearest and most explicit sign yet that He was the Messiah, the promised one, sent from God to rescue His people. He was the King of Kings. Now, I'm using that term, King of Kings, because I'm saying that He's a King above every other King. Jesus is communicating in this situation in an indirect but loud and clear way that he's not only the king of the Jewish nation, but that he is the king of all peoples everywhere at all times. We believe that God, that Jesus is God in human flesh, come to rule everyone forever. That's what we believe as Christians. He's the king of kings. The situation and the circumstances that Mark tells us about in these 11 short verses point to Jesus as king in so many places. First, when they arrive in the two villages not too far from Jerusalem, rather than continue walking to Jerusalem as they have been the entire way up till now, Mark spends five whole verses telling us about how Jesus arranges a new form of transportation for himself for the final stretch of entering into Jerusalem. He gives careful instructions for two of his disciples to go and to get a colt, which was a young donkey, never ridden by anyone in its life, and bring it back to him. He knows just where to tell them it will be. And he knows just what to say to those who will ask them why they're taking it when they come for it. There are hints as well of Jesus' divine kingship, even in his instructions to tell his disciples, um, those who are watching the cult, that the Lord needs it. 
Beyond the supernatural knowledge that Jesus has of where and how to get this cult, Jesus is enacting a royal coronation scene from a very special time in Israel's history. You heard Nigel read from up front here the story of King David in 1 Kings chapter 1, setting up the anointing and the coronation of his son Solomon. This was a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth. Now, it was commonly understood as well that an unridden mule or a colt was only a king's transportation. No one else could ride the king's mule. Remember, remember from that passage that Nigel read, King David told his men to take Solomon outside the city walls, anoint him as king, put Solomon on his personal mule, and ride him back into the city with shouts of praise and celebration from a crowd that they had gathered. This scene is just like that scene. Now Jesus is doing the same thing. He's reenacting it. Only this time, His Father God has arranged a kingly cult for Him to ride into the city. It was a clear signal to the people that He thought of Himself as King. A King descended from David. There's no... There's... He's like no other king because he is the fulfillment of the promise of God to set one of David's descendants on the throne forever. You, you may remember, if you've ever read back in the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel, in chapter 7, God makes a promise to King David that he will place one of David's sons or descendants on the throne forever. And God even says, this is what it says in verse 14 of chapter 7 in 2 Samuel, I will be his father and he will be my son. That's what God says. Solomon, of course, David's son, fulfilled that promise in some way. But Solomon eventually died and he was buried and laid to rest with his fathers. Jesus fulfills that promise now in a complete and final way. He is the descendant of David and the Son of God coming to take the throne forever. Solomon's crowning 1,000 years before was a shadow and an image of what Christ would do in this very passage right here. Jesus is actively embracing the identity of of the prophesied Messiah, the one sent from God, the Christ, the coming King. Not only is there the image of King Solomon being crowned to point to Jesus, but we see that Jesus is also fulfilling the words of the prophet Zechariah. If you were to look in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which was widely known among the Jews to speak about the coming Messiah, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then there's the fact that Jesus allowed the crowds who were with them to spread their cloaks on the road for the colt to walk on, on their way to Jerusalem. Spreading your cloak on the ground for someone to stand on or walk on was an age-old sign of submission to a king. 
So the people surely here are recognizing Jesus as royalty. And they go further. They go further. They run behind and they run in front of Jesus on the colt. And they're shouting some verses from a famous poem in the Psalms, Psalm 118. Now that psalm was also commonly known to point to the Messiah who would be sent from God to save them from the oppression of the other nations around them. And so they literally shouted out as they went along, Hosanna! Hosanna! Hosanna means save in Hebrew. So they were running behind and in front of Jesus saying, save, save. These were the shouts of hope for the coming Messiah King. But Mark tells us they also shouted something that wasn't in the psalm. They shouted a line. They made up a line and fit it in with the rest of those verses from the psalm. They said, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. That's not in the psalm. It's even more explicitly pointing to the Messiah coming and their declaration of him. They saw Jesus as the fulfillment of the old promise to David to put one of his descendants on the throne forever. And they were proclaiming it with gusto and with enthusiasm and with zeal. The main point of this passage is that Jesus is the King of Kings. Jesus is the King of Kings. The crowd acknowledged him as a king and Jesus himself was saying in his actions, I'm the promised Messiah King. Now, what from this passage can we learn about this Jesus who is a king of kings? What's he like? Well, one thing we learn is that this Jesus is in control. Jesus is in control. In Bible language, we would say that he is sovereign. He's not being pushed around by the people and the circumstances that are swirling around him. No, even in the midst of the crowds and the people, he seems to be the one who's orchestrating everything, doesn't he? And he's the one, of course, who had the supernatural knowledge about where to go and get the unridden colt. And he's the one who directed the disciples with the confident and careful instructions of what to say to those who would object to them taking it. Friends, I want to tell you that this Jesus, he is still in control. He is still in control. Now, some of you who are here this morning may not be Christians. You, you may be here because a friend invited you to come. Well done, friend. <laughs> or maybe you're here with a family member. Or maybe you, maybe you just Googled us on the web and found us and you've shown up this morning. You don't know anybody else here. You're welcome. You're so welcome. You're welcome every week. Did you ever think to yourself, or maybe you've heard this idea about Jesus, this idea that probably Jesus was, you know, an amazing moral teacher and that we all should learn some important lessons from this Jesus uh, to apply to our lives, but you think to yourself, along with a lot of other people, uh, he wasn't God, <laughs> And he never claimed to be God either, of course. I hope you see in this passage that Jesus is in complete control. Jesus is in complete control. He's the one who organized the kingly ride into Jerusalem. Not his followers, 
They weren't the ones who invented the idea that he was God. He was the one communicating it to them. He's the one who chose to go into that city knowing full well that he would die there within a week. He was not just a good moral teacher. No, he is God. He's in control of all the aspects of his life and they point to his divine identity. Now you, Redeemer Church, Christians who are here, Jesus is in control is one of the most important truths that we can learn to apply to our lives. We, we can't know it deeply enough, can we? Knowing that God is in control allows us to and enables us to trust Him ever more deeply, every week, every day, to be confident of His love for us in all situations, even the most painful and confusing. Whatever is happening in your life right now is in the control of God. Whatever is happening in your life right now is in the control of God. Some of you are experiencing painful things among your family. Maybe your family here, maybe distant family in distant lands. Some of you are dealing with difficult work situations or decisions that you have to make. You're not sure where your next paycheck is going to come from. You're not sure if you're going to make it to the end of the month with what you do have. Some of you have been feeling lonely to the core of your being for such a long time. Others of you have been dealing with depression for years. Jesus, the King of Kings, is even in control of your life. Trust Him now for the patience to wait. Trust Him now for joy in the midst of pain. Trust Him now for the strength to fight sin and to be faithful when it's not easy. Over the past few months, a brother in Christ who is here in our church was waiting for a visa to immigrate to another country. Both he and his wife can never return to their home country or else they would face certain dramatic persecution. On Monday, he said to me, It is so difficult, Brian, to trust that God is in control in this situation, to wait on Him. But now I know that God is at work in me even as I wait. The next day, he received his passport and visa to travel. King Jesus is in control and you can trust Him. Another thing that we learn about King Jesus in in these verses is that He is humble. Jesus is humble. Jesus had every right, of course, to ride into Jerusalem in a chariot pulled by three white stallions, dressed to the nines, holding a golden scepter in His right hand, adorned with beautiful clothes like Caesar, and even better. He had every right. But like the prophecy in Zechariah says, See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. As Christians, we seek to imitate Christ's character. 
We seek to be humble people. And we seek to be filled with what the Bible describes as the fruit of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. In other words, what grows in us because God dwells in us through His Spirit. And one of those fruits that's listed in the book of Galatians is gentleness. It's like humility. From chapter 8 through 10, in fact, just before this passage that we're studying now, Jesus has repeatedly taught his disciples to consider themselves to be last rather than first, to not push to the front of the line, to go to the back of the line. And he's taught them to be servants of other people around them, not to seek to be served. And he offers up himself as an example of that. He says, the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. Husbands, are you leading your wife humbly and gently like Jesus? Are you seeking to imitate this character trait of Jesus more and more as you look to Him in faith? We don't care what the world says about what real men do and how they act. Jesus is our template for how real men act. You must do this if you would follow after Christ. All of you who are working, what about in your workplace? Are you seeking the success of those who work around you regardless of who they are or what their character is? Or those of you who are youth, who are involved in regeneration, you're here just this morning. When you gather together with other youth, do you Think about what you can say or do that will encourage and build other youth around you up. Do you think about that? Or are you looking for ways to draw attention to yourself? Maybe do you spend time thinking about what clever things you can say in the midst of youth at school or youth group or on Facebook? Those actions are not humble and gentle. They're not like our King Jesus. If you claim Jesus as Lord and Savior, put your trust in Him for your significance and love and serve other people around you, thinking first of them and not of yourself. Now, you may have noticed that I've not talked about verse 11 yet. Verse 11 is really kind of a bit of a strange verse compared with the others that come before it. There's a a building of excitement and celebration in verses 1 through 10. And then in verse 11, it's like it, it all falls silent. It says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Where did the crowds go that were just a moment before treating him like he was the coming messianic king? I mean, if, if they really understood who he was, wouldn't they, wouldn't they take him themselves to the temple? I mean, that was the temple built in the place where Solomon had built one so long ago. And, and wouldn't they not have anointed and crowned him king right there in that place? Instead, Jesus arrived at the temple where every other king had gone to worship with his people. But if they had understood who he really was, they would have arrived with him. And they would have worshipped him. 
This verse, verse 11, in light of those that come before it, teach us to know the difference between a cross mentality and a crowd mentality in following Jesus. A cross mentality and a crowd mentality. That's the second major truth that I want us to apply today. This crowd, of course, was enthusiastically cheering him as king, saying, Blessed is the kingdom of our, co- our father David. And in less than one week, some of those people were chanting, Crucify him! Crucify him! What happened? What went wrong? You see, none of them, none of them, not even the disciples, none of them understood that this king would die on a cross in order to get to his throne. They didn't understand that. Just two days ago, Steve Jobs, or maybe it was three days ago now, the iconic CEO of Apple Computer, he died, as many of you have seen. You know, it's one thing when a former famous political leader or a former celebrity dies and you see it on the front pages, but you know it's a person of influence when it's the CEO of a company that dies and everybody knows about it. Steve Jobs was, he was an amazing designer and businessman, and he seemed close to probably being a Buddhist if you would weigh up the things that he said publicly about faith and religion. But even he, Steve Jobs, recognized the fear of death in people and a resistance against it when he said at a university commencement, no one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. But Jesus, Jesus had taught his disciples in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35, that it was necessary to die if you would follow this King Jesus and be with him in heaven. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now listen to me. Listen very carefully. True discipleship follows King Jesus to the cross. True discipleship follows King Jesus to the cross. The crowds had enthusiasm for Jesus as king, but not for the king's cross. Like the crowds, true disciples, of course, I mean, at times, they're enthusiastic for Jesus. I felt enthusiastic for Jesus this morning when I sang, crown him with many crowns. You guys sound great, by the way, now that we've gathered everybody in this room together. I like this room even better. I was so encouraged. I felt enthusiastic. I felt zealous. And that's a good thing. But mere enthusiasm alone will not take us to the cross and into life with Christ. Mere enthusiasm alone will not do that. When I was in Washington, D.C. back in March with the other elders and some church leaders here from Redeemer, we went to Capitol Hill Baptist Church and one of the ministry leaders there told the story of how he had come to faith. He had come to faith in that church, Capitol Hill. His name was Ryan And Ryan said that he had gone to church there for a number of months, actually, maybe even almost a year, as a non-Christian, just investigating, checking it out, very skeptical in the beginning, 
But God was wearing him down over time. And he came to Mark Dever, the pastor there, finally, and he said, I, I want to become a Christian. I, I believe this. And so Mark walked him through an explanation of the gospel. I don't know, it was probably two ways to live. It's what we teach this, here in our church, so that you can know how to explain the gospel to people in a very simple way. He explained that to him, and he invited Ryan uh, to pray a prayer of confession to God and present himself to God. And Ryan did that. Ryan was excited. He says he was so exuberant. And soon after that, Mark uh, told him and turned to him about what it would mean for him to grow in Christ. And he finished with this statement. He said, Ryan, only time will tell if you've made a true confession of faith. Time will tell. The Bible teaches that it's possible to make a false or empty profession of faith. It it often involves only identifying Jesus as king. So it's not enough to just say Jesus is the king. Yeah, Jesus over there is the king. That's like being in the cheering crowd. But they would not be there at the cross with him. That's a crowd mentality. It must become for us, Jesus is my king. Jesus is my king. This is what it means to follow him to the cross. If he is your king, you will go there. Pledging your allegiance to him in all things and for all times. That's a cross mentality, not a crowd mentality. Now those of you who consider yourselves Christians who are here this morning, what has time told about your confession of faith? What has time told? Now I'm not saying that you haven't struggled with sin since you've become a Christian. That's not, that doesn't rule you out of being a Christian. No, in fact, if you've struggled against sin, then that's probably a good sign that you may be a Christian. Remember, remember too, that I'm not asking you to judge you. I'm asking you to to help you examine yourself. Because that's what the Scriptures teach us to do. So, cheering for Jesus on Friday, but refusing to repent and fight sin and trust in Jesus on Sunday through Thursday should make us think twice about whether or not we're in the faith. Having a cross mentality and not a crowd mentality has implications for how we lead our church too, how we do ministry here. In the ministry of this church, we want to point you to the cross at all times. You might get tired of us talking about it. We want to offer you the truth of God's Word, which we believe will sustain you. That's the thing that will sustain you. It's going to, it's going to keep you tied to Christ. We're always going to avoid leading you in ways that manipulate you emotionally or seek to simply rally you into mere outward declarations of allegiance to King Jesus. I don't know if you remember back several weeks ago, Max Stiles, as he spoke about preachers when he was speaking out of the book of Jonah, he talked about preachers who can make you laugh and then they can make you cry. And then they make you laugh and then make you cry. And then you're putty in their hands. They can make you do anything just about. That's not what we want to do here. 
We want to offer you God's word and God's truth, which will sustain you even tomorrow morning and the day after that and the day after that and the day after that until he comes back. Anything we teach you from the Bible, we want you to understand in light of the cross. Because we see the cross as the focal point, the pivot point in the entire biblical story. Now those of you who are not Christians, I want to come back to you again. I want to urge you to consider this King Jesus. He's your king too, you know. We believe he's your king whether or not you've acknowledged it or not. You may have met some people who called themselves Christians, but they were like the crowd in this story. Maybe they cheered Jesus one minute and then they abandoned him the next. You may have seen that in your life. That's not true faith. That's not real Christianity. That's not what's described in the Bible. The most important thing that this king did was come to free us from the slavery and the punishment due to us because of our sin. We've all gone astray from God. Those of us who are in the church, we acknowledge that freely. We are sinners. Even with Christ at work in our lives, we're sinners. Because before we had decided to rule our own lives instead of submitting to his good and perfect rulership. So every sin was an act of rebellion against God. Every sin was, a, was us saying to God, nope, I'll do it my way, thank you, God. But you look around, don't you? And you know how that ends up. We can't rule ourselves. We fail. We fail at ruling our societies. They're breaking down. We fail at ruling the world. It's in an uproar. The punishment for that Rebellion is death. And God cannot leave that undone. He cannot leave it undone. We brought it on ourselves, each and every one of us. We needed saving. We needed a king who would rescue us and rule us in love and righteousness. And so Jesus came. He claimed to be that king. He rode into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago without any sin because he was God himself. And he humbly and he bravely faced down the religious rulers who had taken over his city and his temple and the faith that was meant to point to him. And you know what they did? They crucified him. You know what? Even that was according to his plan. Even that was according to his plan. It was all because he loves sinners. On the cross, this king took the punishment that his enemies deserved. And when he did this, he guaranteed that some of those enemies would be welcomed into his kingdom as his beloved subjects. On that cross, he won for himself a forgiven people for his kingdom. And then God raised His Son Jesus, King Jesus, to life. And He still lives. He still lives. Anyone who recognizes that they are rebelling against God through their sin, they can still enter that kingdom. They can turn themselves in as enemies. They can wave the white flag. And be welcomed by King Jesus into His presence forevermore. Friend, I encourage you. Turn to Him now. 
Put your trust and faith in this King of Kings. Follow Him to the cross. Ignore the crowd. That kind of king, he's worth perpetual, ongoing celebration. Infinitely more worthy than Caesar with his pomp and extravagance. And in a sense, that is what we do here every Friday when we come together. We gather to celebrate our King Jesus. Let's pray. King Jesus, we worship you. We praise you that you came and you died and you rose again. And you are gathering together for yourself a people into your kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel. Even you are using us in that. And we praise you and thank you for that. We rejoice in you and we celebrate you. We bow before you as king. Amen.